1: In today's message, rather than continuing our series on the kingdom of God, we go back to Brother Buddy Abernathy's series on the book of Revelation. You may recall that in the last couple of messages, he looked at the letter to the church at Ephesus, and we saw what happens when a church leaves its first love. Today, Brother Buddy begins to deal with the letter to the church at Smyrna, a church that was under great persecution. In the first half of this message, we see some of the basic principles that this church needed to cling to, and ultimately, we will see that God gave them great encouragement and persecution. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit. Poor, weak, and poor
0: Yeah. from the book of Revelation, chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 8 through 11. And we'll read those verses slowly. And I encourage you to follow along because we want to try to uh, home in on what he's addressing here. In Revelation, chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches, He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, here, as Jesus is speaking about the church at Smyrna, it's unlike the first church that he addresses, which was the church of Ephesus, because the Bible gives a lot of information concerning the church of Ephesus. You can go in the book of Acts, which is the only Uh, inspired church history and therefore it is the only one that is completely accurate and there's quite a bit of information about the church of Ephesus. And then we know that Paul wrote an entire epistle to the church at Ephesus and if you were only going to be able to read one of Paul's letters, that would probably be a good selection because his letter to Ephesus is neatly divided. The first three chapters are primarily doctrinal, and when we say doctrinal, we're talking about God's salvation of his people and everything related to that. And then the last three chapters are totally different because they address how we're to behave ourselves as his children. One of the key verses with regard to that is the last verse of chapter 2 in Ephesians where he says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So as far as our new birth is concerned, that's a creation, a spiritual creation. But the reason he's given us spiritual life is so that we might live our life in this world in a way that is pleasing to him. Now, when we come to the church at Smyrna, I think this is the only information you're going to find about it. And as I've said many times before, if you can prove me wrong, that's fine, that just shows that you're being very diligent in studying the Bible. So don't ever be afraid uh, to show me where I'm wrong. That's what you're supposed to do anyway. Because in Acts chapter 17, you remember that uh, Paul commented about the uh, churches of Berea. And he said that they were more noble than those at Thessalonica in that they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the people at Berea were commended and the church at Thessalonica was not a bad church, but it says they were more noble than those at Thessalonica. I left that little phrase out. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica because they received the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily, whether these things were so. So that's a very good important point for us to remember, that the preacher is not uh, independent of correction. And as a matter of fact, the way the church uh, stays free of corruption is through accountability. See, we're all accountable to one another in the church. And that's the way the Lord would have us to be. But here as we look at the church of Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, he begins by saying, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna. Now you probably remember that the uh, seven angels uh, of the seven churches are the, uh, the messengers of the churches. And I believe that's referring to the uh, overseer, primarily the pastor. Uh, And these are men that God has called. Uh, You don't select to be in this office, it's an office that God selects you for. So he's writing to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And obviously uh, in the same way today that our Read the Bible in order to teach it to you. In like manner, when the Lord addresses the angel, the messenger, the pastor, the sole purpose is for him to then in turn give that to you. So don't look at this as if uh, the Lord's just speaking to the messenger of the church. He says, unto the angel of the church in Smyrna "Right, These things saith the first... And the last, which was dead and is alive. Now, obviously, this is referring to Jesus. You remember in chapter 2 and verse 1 that he is the one uh, who walketh in the midst of the seven candlesticks. And the candlesticks represent the church, the individual called out assembly, the body of baptized believers. Now, a candlestick uh, is a good representation of the church because unless it is lit, it serves no purpose. You know, today we have candlesticks for decoration, but in this time, that was your source of light. So in the same way, the candlestick is a, serves no purpose without uh, being lit in like manner Uh, the church is helpless without the fire of the Holy Spirit. I like what one preacher said about the Holy Spirit one time. He said, unlike what we often see today, uh, when you're full of the Spirit, it doesn't make you crazy. He said it gives you good sense for the first time. And I like that. You know, when you're filled with the Spirit, you don't jump over pews and fall out on the floor. When you're filled with the Spirit, you're under the influence of God. And God uh, has all knowledge. And God believes and teaches us to do things decently and in order. So being filled with the Spirit doesn't cause confusion. It causes order, and it, uh, uh, it influences fellowship among the members of the church. But before we get into... These other verses, here's the thought I've had on this church. The main issue, the main problem that they had was persecution, and the persecution they were experiencing, that is, the degree of persecution they were going through, is something you and I Know nothing about from experience. And so I said, Well, Lord, how do I need to apply this to Zion Church? None of us have been through this, and it's hard to learn lessons, especially about persecution, if you haven't experienced it. But you know, the instruction the Lord gave to this church was for them to just trust Him and keep on obeying him. Now, they were being persecuted severely. You know, he even said in verse 10 uh, that the devil shall cast some of you into prison that you may be tried and you shall have tribulation 10 days. Now, tribulation comes from a word that literally means to press together. Think of a vice that you would use. I remember me and a friend of mine, we would take those uh, little plastic army men and his daddy had a vice and we would squeeze it as tight as we could, you know, to flatten them out. That, that's the idea of tribulation is to press together. So he's here talking about pressure. It could be mental anguish as well as physical. But you and I have not experienced it to this degree. You know, our persecution might be, well, I can't get the promotion because I want compromise. Or people at work or at school make fun of me because I'm a Christian. See, our level of persecution, and I don't think we could really call it that, is so minor compared to what the New Testament church has experienced. You know, America is the exception, not the rule, and it's hard for us to think about that isn't it because all I've known is America and yet we have it we have such unusual freedom in contrast to many many places in the world so instead of looking at the severity of their persecution let's look at the instructions the Lord gave them because if they were encouraged to be faithful in their situation, how much the more ought we to be faithful today? There's no telling what types of conditions they met in. You know, I saw a a picture one time of some people that were sitting in pews and singing hymns and everything looked great. And then they showed the floor and they were there was water in the building. It was above their ankles. This was in some other country. And it was as if there wasn't even water there. They didn't pay any attention to it. And I thought, there's no way we would meet if that was a situation. But see, there was a time when people did not focus on the physical conditions. And I'm preaching to myself more than anybody else when I say we're spoiled, aren't we? I mean, we can come out here today, it doesn't matter how cold it is outside, you know, we just have, we're drowning in luxury in our world, aren't we? Everything is so comfortable. Let's notice the first thing he wants to emphasize to this church. He says, These things saith the first, And the last, it's important to understand that if Jesus is the one walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, if he's the one whose influence we feel when we have an outstanding meeting, if that's what we're feeling, if that's what we're experiencing, if we understand that he's our intercessor, and the Bible says there is one intercessor between man and God, and that's Jesus Christ. If we understand he is our advocate, he pleads our case to the Father. That's such a wonderful concept to understand. He's he's our intercessor and our advocate. He He makes a way open for us to God, and then he pleads our case to God. It's as if he said, Now, Father, this is one that I redeemed. Positionally speaking, Jesus could say to the Father, he could say, Father, uh, in a positional sense, this person that's bringing prayers is blameless. Did you know positionally speaking, you're sinless in Christ right now? Now, I didn't say actually and vitally, but positionally speaking, You're blameless in the sight of God. And we need to understand uh, this man, Jesus Christ, is not inferior to God. That's why it begins by saying, he's the first and the last. We might say it this way today. He's everything A to Z. He's the first and the last. He wasn't the first created being, and we'll see that in a minute, But as far back as you can go, uh, there's nothing prior to him. And as you anticipate the future, there's nothing beyond him. Now let's look at some scriptures that will uh, clearly support this. First of all, look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and beginning with verse 1. In the beginning was the Word and now... Let's pause and notice this. The word, word is capitalized and the way to understand why that's the case is you can turn to 1 John 5, 7. If you have a King James translation, this is one of those that are removed from all the other modern English translations and I know all of you have a King James translation. And it says in 1 John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. We've said many times the best dictionary for the Bible is the Bible. And there's no question who that's referring to. Three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Jesus is the living word. Now, we'll not turn to this, but Peter said it this way. He said, referring to Jesus, the living word, he says, this is the word, which by the gospel is preached unto you. Now, that wouldn't make sense to say this is the gospel, which by the gospel is preached unto you, no. This is the word, the living word. Isn't that the the core focus of the gospel, the living word? This is the word which by means of the gospel, the preached word, is preached unto you. So notice now in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, capital W, and the word was with God and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. You know what that means? That means you can interchange the words and it's still the truth. Notice this and you know, sometimes it's hard to get this right, but you can read it this way. That's what verse two is saying when it says the same was in the beginning with God. You can just as well say in the beginning was God and God was God, uh, God was with the word and God was the word. You can say it that way and it's just as much true because they're they're three in one verse 3 all things were made by him that does not teach that God made Jesus does it it teaches that Jesus was one with the father you know in Genesis chapter 1 it says in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth but remember when, when man was created you remember what God said let us Make man in our image. It was somebody there with him. When this world was created. Here he says. Referring to the living word. He says all things were made by him. And without him. Was not anything made. That was made. Now look also. at One more in Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to get back to Revelation. But you see. Jesus, who inspired John to write those verses, knew that those persecuted Christians needed to understand for whose sake they were being persecuted and that it was worth it in the sense that Jesus would take care of them. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Referring to Jesus, it says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Now when he says he's the firstborn of every creature, that means he is is the life giver. He is the beginning. He is the source. He's the firstborn of every creature. And notice how relevant this is as described in Hebrews chapter 1 and beginning uh, with uh, verse 1. God who at sundry times in divers manners, that just means God who at different times in different ways spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, that's referring to the Old Testament, hath in, now watch this, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the world. I've given you three verses in John, Colossians, and Hebrews that teach that Jesus is the creator. And way back in Genesis, when man was created, God said, let us make man in our image. See, this is a central mark of the truth church and I listen, I an identifying mark of a cult is they deny that Jesus is God manifest in the flesh. Now they won't tell you that up front, but ultimately they believe, many of them, that Jesus was just a mortal just as you and but he was able to live in such a way that he became exalted. And if you'll follow that example you can likewise be exalted. And there are many different variations which result from teaching that Jesus is a created being. But this says all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made.
1: Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. But please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message.